Today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. The shield of faith, when not taken up, I want to talk about that in a moment, would connect to the belt of truth. The helmet, when not worn on the head, would connect to the belt of truth. And certainly the sword of the Spirit would also, when not drawn and used, connect to uh, the belt of truth. What's my point? My point is that the truth holds everything together. If you don't have the truth, then everything falls apart. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Esther. Many of us have probably caught on to the constant attack against truth and absolutes. If truth can indeed be recognized as a subjective opinion, then all surrounding claims to said truth can be dismantled. In today's message, Pastor J.D. teaches us how God's truth is the pillar and foundation to all existence, without which everything falls apart. Now be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now here's Pastor J.D. in Esther chapter 9 with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. Well, let me read verse 10. Finally, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, or I like how another translation renders it, we wrestle not. Wrestling is a very intense sport. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not. We wrestle not against people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Uh, Did you notice there are four separate, different ranking entities in the spiritual realm? You have those that are in positions that rule. You have another that are the authorities. You have the third that are the powers of this dark world. And the fourth, which are the spiritual forces of evil. One has suggested that in the spiritual realm, there are different rankings, just like we would have different rankings in the military. So these are different rankings, and they're assigned in the spiritual realm to rule over certain areas and rankings within uh, this spiritual uh, warfare. Verse 13, Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace." And verse 16, in addition to all this, or as another translation renders it, above all, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then verse 17, take the helmet 
of salvation. And here it is, lastly, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, if you'll indulge me just for a a brief moment here, I want to kind of give you a a better visual of how this armor actually worked. Let's start with the belt of truth. Very significant that it's the first one that's mentioned for good reason. This is not, you know, random. The belt of truth held everything in place. And isn't that fitting? Truth holds everything in place. Uh, The breastplate connected to the belt of truth. The shoes all the way up protected the the legs, the feet, everything, all the way up to the belt of truth. The shield of faith, when not taken up, I want to talk about that in a moment, would connect to the belt of truth. The helmet, when not worn on the head, would connect to the belt of truth. And certainly the sword of the Spirit would also, when not drawn and used, connect to uh, the belt of truth. What's my point? My point is that the truth holds everything together. If you don't have the truth, then everything falls apart. You have nothing to hold it and tighten it and keep it in place. It has to be based on the truth. What does the breastplate do? The breastplate of righteousness? Interesting. It uh, protects the heart. Protects the heart. It's not our own righteousness, which Isaiah says is as filthy rags. It is Christ's imputed righteousness. And so that protects these vital internal organs. You know, my hand is not a vital organ. If if I, God forbid, lost my hand, I would still be alive. I can't lose the internal organs. Those are vital organs. And that's what the breastplate of righteousness protects, those vital organs, and chief of which is one's heart. How about the helmet of salvation? This is an interesting one. Protects the mind. Because here's Satan, he comes in and he starts planning doubts uh, about one's salvation. You know that on a weekly basis, I'll get comments and emails that are sent in to the office, people that are questioning their salvation. They, they have doubts about whether or not, these are, these are people that are born again, they love the Lord, they are saved. And somehow Satan has succeeded in planting this seed of doubt in their mind to start getting them to question their salvation. Isn't it appropriate then that the helmet of salvation would protect the mind? And then you have the shield of faith. This is a really interesting uh, part of the armor. The The shields at that time were made of metal and wood, and they would dip them in water, very, very appropriate, and they would use the shields to extinguish these arrows that were on fire. These are flaming arrows that the enemy would shoot at them. And they would take that shield and block them and extinguish them because they were dipped in the water. And this is another picture of or type of the Word of God. But when Paul says, above all, taking up the shield, watch this. This is amazing. So these shields would have a tongue and groove. So they would lock in 
with the shield of the one next to you. So when he says above all, it doesn't mean that the shield of faith is the most most important above all the other pieces of the armor. No. Above all meant you would put it, take it up above all of you, lock it in, tongue and groove with those next to you, and you would create this impenetrable fortress that would protect you. Now watch this. That presupposes that you're assembled together. In other words, if you're away from the assembling together of your comrades, for lack of a better word, then you could not, you're, you're vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. And does not the enemy do that? When we're told that he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, these, these lions, as they stalk their prey, they wait for someone to get alone, isolated from the rest. And they are just a sitting duck, so to speak, and it's just a matter of time. And then these man-eating lions, literally in Africa, they made a movie about this, I forget the, the name of it, but very interesting, it would stalk very patiently. And this is the picture that is painted for us of the enemy. They would, they would stalk the prey and wait for that optimum time when that prey is isolated from the rest, and then they would pounce on them and attack them and just absolutely kill them. And that's what the enemy does. And that's why when you're assembled together, and above all, that shield is about you, and the people, the guys on the side would put the shield and lock tongue and groove, and literally nothing could, so the arrows come, and they're extinguished, and they can't penetrate. Why? Because of the shield of faith. Well now what happens if you find yourself in combat, one-on-one? Well that's where the sword of the Spirit comes in. Oh interesting, by the way, uh, as one has aptly noted, there is no armor for the back. You know what that means? You can't run, because <laughs> if you run, you're dead. <laughs> no, that's why Paul says, stand firm then. Take your stand and stand firm, head on. And then with the sword of the Spirit, that is what determines the victory. It is written, it is written. Hath God said, <laughs> it is written, thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. It's the word of God, the word of God, the word of God, and you resist the enemy and he will flee. Oh, uh, he's tenacious for sure. But when you're being attacked, you're being tempted, and you stand your ground and you use your sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, it's just a matter of time, and He will leave. He will flee. Oh, He's coming back. Don't think, wow, praise the Lord. I'm. Oh, no. You know what it, it says in Luke's Gospel, after He tempted Jesus, and Jesus resisted Him, and He fled? It says, He fled and then waited for another time to attack and to tempt. A more, I think that uh, one of the translations renders a more opportune time 
to attack. And one last thing here, and we'll move on. But when did Satan attack and tempt Jesus? When he was fasting? When he was hungry? When he was weary? When he was exhausted? When he was tired? When he was isolated? When he was alone? When he was in the wilderness? I mean, you can just keep going on with that list and superimpose that template in your in your own life. When does Satan attack you? He doesn't attack you when you're... <laughs> he attacks you when you least expect it. He attacks you when you're down and discouraged. Half the battle's already been won, as it were. You know, when you're physically tired, you're discouraged, you're just weary. Oh, I promise you, I promise you, the enemy is right there. Oh, you look, you look a little bit down. Yeah. <laughs> you seem discouraged. Oh, yeah, I'm really discouraged. And then he just takes it from there. And that's when you have to stand firm. Verse 6, And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, and you'll forgive in advance my pronunciation of these names, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Asphatha, Porath, verse 8, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vajasatha. Boy, what names are those? Oh, you know who they are, by the way? <laughs> well, verse 10 tells us and explains a lot. These are the ten sons of Haman. Oh, well, that explains it. So the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but, this is interesting, they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, why? I wonder why. Oh, the reason why is because that's not why the Jews killed them. The Jews killed them in self-defense. The Jews did not kill them to take a plunder. That's not what this was about. And by the way, this is an interesting irony because if I remember correctly, didn't Haman want to plunder all of the... In fact, isn't that how he was going to get the 10,000 talents of silver that he bas pardon me, basically sold out the Jews for when he got the king to issue this, this edict? It was all about the plunder. And here the Jews kill them and conquer them and prevail over them, but they don't take one thing from them. Why? Because that's not what they're doing here. They're, tr they're just trying to save their lives. They're not trying to take a spoil. And, th and there's one more thing here I want to mention. It's, very, it's a very important detail, and I, I really want you to listen. There's a difference between murder and killing. Okay, You know the uh, commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill? That's really not a very good translation of what that commandment is. The commandment is, Thou shalt not commit murder. Okay? There's a difference between killing and murder. If I kill somebody in self-defense, that's not murder. That's not premeditated murder. See, what uh, Haman wanted to do was murder the Jew. 
What the Jews are doing here is killing their enemies in self-defense. It's kill or be killed. This is not murder. This is the opposite of murder. This is killing in self-defense. Those who want to murder you. And that's what's happening here. And uh, we're going to see this two more times, actually. Verse 11, on that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or, what is your further request? It shall be done. Now here's Esther's response, verse 13. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow. She wants an extended day in this battle to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. Give us one more day. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Yeah, you go girl. (laughs) Sorry. So verse 14, the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan and they hanged Haman's ten sons. Um, I want to, maybe this is as good of a time as any to address something here. I sometimes come under criticism for my sanctified satisfaction in seeing uh, the wicked get their just, uh, you're laughing, (laughs) because you do too, don't you? I mean, it's, listen, uh, and I'm talking about even when I was a pastor on the mainland, that's not very loving. Where's the love? We're to love our enemies. Oh, okay. If I recall, there are several places in the pages of Holy Writ where God himself says, I laugh at them. I laugh at them. And there's a cheering that takes place when God has the final word with man's evil. God laughs. I think there's a sanctified satisfaction that is justified when God has the final word. And here's Esther. I mean, she could be accused of being disproportionately harsh. I mean, here's the queen saying, I want the ten sons of Haman hung on the gallows. And the king, that that sounds like you're being vengeful. Doesn't God say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord? This is vindictive because of what Haman and his sons apparently wanted to do to you. So you're getting back at them. That's not right. Oh, really? It's not? Well, wait a minute. Not so fast. Hear me out. I'm going to argue the case. And with a holy boldness, please don't think this is arrogance, God knows my heart, but with a holy boldness, I will tell you that what Esther does here 
was in obedience to the command of God. And, oh, by the way, wasn't it Saul, the king, the first king of Israel in 1 Samuel 15, that spared this King Agag of the Amalekites? Oh, oh, he, he showed them mercy, apparently. Well, wait a minute. God commanded him to kill every single Amalekite, leave none alive, and to kill even the women and the children and the livestock. How about that? And he spares this king, uh, Agag, the Amalekite. You know who... Uh, was a descendant of this this guy? Haman. Haman. We, we, we learned that right out of the chute on day one in chapter one. When we were introduced to, it might not have been chapter one, might have been chapter two. I'm a, I stand corrected if I'm wrong. But when we're introduced to Haman, we're told who he's the descendant of. And wouldn't you know it? He's the descendant. He's an Amalekite. Do you know how merciless the Amalekites were to the Israelites? Do you know some of the things? It's it's even hard to utter the words in describing what the Amalekites did to the Jews. And God commanded Saul to annihilate them before they annihilated God's people. And he disobeyed that command. And here Esther, all these generations later, is making good on the command of God. They're all to be killed. Not one of them spared. And these ten sons of Haman, they are to be hung on the gallows. And they were. And the king granted this petition. It's righteous. What do we know to be true about God? He is just, He is righteous, and He is fair. He is just, He is righteous, and He is fair. His judgments are righteous. And so this is what we see happening here. I feel a lot better. I hope you do too. Let's move on. Verse 15. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day. Can I just say one last thing? I'm sorry, you'll forgive me. This is uh, maybe how I'm wired. But what do you think is going to happen on that great and final day? When every tongue will confess, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thanks for tuning in to Pastor J.D.'s teaching in the book of Esther today. Here at In Spirit and Truth, we strive to bring you God's Word in a way that blesses your life and challenges you to grow closer to your Creator. The book of Esther is one that encourages a deep faith, especially when the world seems to be falling apart around you. Esther didn't crumble under extreme pressure. She instead turned to God and asked her people to pray fervently for her. Prayer is so important in the life of a believer. It's not just a way to tell God what you need. It's a way to hear from Him and get to know Him better. Prayer can be the difference in any situation. So start there today. If you'd like to listen again to today's message, you'll find it at InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com. Just click on Listen. 
having access to messages from God's Word adds some great encouragement to the pauses in your day and helps to keep your focus on Him. You can also download our mobile app for Apple and Android phones to take these teachings wherever you go. Find a link at InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com. If you're in the Kaneohe area, we'd love to include you in our weekly services. Come by Thursday nights for an in-depth Bible study at 7 p.m. or on a Sunday morning at 8.30 or 10.45 a.m. We'd love to meet you and add your voice to our time of worship. With that, our time with you has come to an end today. May God continue to bless your study of His Word, and may you grow closer to Him each day. Join us next time to continue in the book of Esther on In Spirit and Truth.